I think you can go anywhere, and especially if today on the Sunday, even though it's the 4th of July weekend, that doesn't matter, but you can go eat at a restaurant, and you may see a sign, you may see a little offering bowl of some type of container, and it will say something to this effect. 50 cents will feed this person and others like him or her today. I think we've all seen those little signs, the little thing asking for a few cents. Just 50 cents. And when they say that, of course, I get cynical and I say, 50 cents, why are you charging me 10 bucks? It doesn't really make sense. I know what they're saying is that if everyone gave 50 cents, it would amount to quite a bit and we could feed a lot of hurting people. We see pleas like this almost every day. We see them for children, for the poor, for the military, for first responders. We have organizations such as Feed the Children, International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, Tunnels to Towers, Wounded Warrior, Red Cross, numerous Christian organizations, uh, Samaritan's Purse, I think by Franklin Graham, we have them within Churches of Christ ourselves, um, various ministries of people soliciting support. And sometimes that plea is personal, such as what I did today for Kitalabra Joseph, a young man and family man who needs help because of contracting the coronavirus, being hospitalized for several days and now has a bill that is weighing over his mind and over his family's minds. How are they going to come up with $2,200 to pay for his hospitalization when they only maybe make a dollar, at the most $2 a day? Sometimes it may be a person that we see on the street corner. We call them panhandlers. We see them as they're going about their day-to-day activities, and we see them in need. Some of them are very honest. They'll say, why lie? I want some beer. I appreciate the honesty. It doesn't mean I'm going to help the individual, but I appreciate their honesty. Others will just say, anything can help. Well, we know that people are hurting. They've been hurting for a long time, and Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. The question is, what do you and I do when we see or hear these pleas for funds? Well, I know that some will contribute. Many of you, if not all of you, at one time or another have given to somebody. But there will be those others who will not. My question today is, what causes people, good people, good Christians to tune out or to ignore all the pleas that we hear? And let me qualify my question. It's more than just issues of poverty and benevolence. What causes people, Christians, to become indifferent? I read an article, a blog article by the name of Ken Buckle. He says, what causes the psychological condition of indifference? Saying that indifference or apathy is a state in which we don't care, we don't take action on something happening around us. People who are indifferent are often seen as cold, aloof, disinterested, unmotivated, and lacking in passion. But he goes on to say there may be several reasons 
for indifference. One reason, and perhaps a big reason for us in our culture today, is that we are overstimulated. We get information on our cell phones. We get information in social media. We get information from television, day and night. I don't have to tell you, if you watch any type of cable news, that there's a repetition factor going on. We were in a park in Idaho when the, ton- when the condominium tower collapsed in Florida. We didn't hear about it really until we came out on Tuesday. And by that time it had been, I think, five days along. So it had been a period of time. But every hour it was the same thing, obviously. Constant reporting, constant reporting of what was going on, the status. And it's still on the news because it's still an ongoing crisis. And so we continue to pray for those people and we know that they have needs, their families have needs. But sometimes we just hear it and we're overwhelmed by it. And we get overwhelmed with this horrible news and we wonder, what can we do about it? So maybe we just shut down emotionally thinking, I can't do anything. And so as a means of coping, psychologically we just shut down. Indifference can occur when the problem, he continues on, when the problems in our own life, our families, our communities, when our country, our world seems so overwhelming that we feel powerless to do anything about them. And this means that when we notice what is going on around us, since we may, we may then feel unable to make a difference, and so instead of trying to make a little bit of difference, it's only 50 cents, my words, not his, we just simply shrug our shoulders and move on waiting to see the next person that's going to have a handout and needing help. Ellie Weisel wrote about the perils of indifference himself in saying the word really means no difference. It's a strange and unnatural state in which the lines blur between light and darkness, dusk and dawn, crime and punishment, cruelty and compassion, good and evil. What are its courses and inescapable consequences? Is it a philosophy? Is there a philosophy of indifference conceivable? How can one possibly view indifference as a virtue? Is it necessary at times to practice it, to keep one's sanity, and live a life normally, to enjoy a fine meal and a glass of wine, as the world around us experiences heaving upheavals? He says, how do we stay in tune with our world when all of this is going on and maintain sanity? He says, indifference can be tempting. But more than that, it can be very seductive. It's easier to look away from victims. It's easier to avoid such rude interruptions to our work, our dreams, our hopes. It's, after all, awkward and troublesome to be involved in another person's pain and despair. Yet for the person who is indifferent, his or her neighbor are of no consequence. And therefore their lives are meaningless. Their hidden or even visible anguish is of no interest. And indifference reduces the other to an abstraction. Indifference, no response, it's not a beginning, it's an end. Indifference, I just don't care. I'm not going to be moved. Amos, one of God's prophets, spoke a long time ago about indifference. Amos wrote about 755 B.C. It was a time of great prosperity in Israel. It was also a time of great corruption. 
Corruption and prosperity oftentimes go hand in hand. The rich were getting richer at the expense of the poor. Injustice was everywhere in the land. Judges were bribed. Justice was bought and sold. The leaders were self-serving. They were indifferent to the needs of the people. There was a false sense of security based on their wealth and power. And therefore the citizens became self-indulgent. Indifferent to the claims of God on their lives. And so in Amos chapter 6, Amos wrote the following. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. The distinguished men of the foremost of nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalna and look. And go from there to Hamath the great. Go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off at the day of calamity, and would you bring near the seat of violence? And then it gets a little bit personal. Verse 4. Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have imposed songs for themselves who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oil yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph therefore, you see these people became very indifferent they were reclining on beds of ivory To me, that speaks of great wealth. Couches, eating the lambs of the flock, calves, young animals, tender and choice. And yet, they didn't look around them to see what was going on. Drinking from sacrificial bowls, composing songs for themselves, because that's all that mattered. And so God says, as as Amos continues, Therefore they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawlers' banqueting will pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of the hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore I will deliver up the city and all it contains. And if if it will be that if there are ten men left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from his house. And he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, Is anyone else with you? And that one will say, No one. And then he will answer, Keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. It was a day that God was going to afflict them, in part for their self-indulgence and their indifference. Some have characterized the words of Amos here to our own country. It applies to us. Many are complacent, indifferent to God, indifferent to His law. And sometimes it impacts even members of God's church. Indifference may be the best weapon in Satan's arsenal. And so I want us to consider something. This is where it will kind of maybe make an introduction in a practical sense to my series on the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Because God speaks to His church. Jesus spoke to a man. A man who, well, not unlike many of the people that were His detractors, tried to trap Him in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, in verse 25... 
It simply says, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Now imagine this scene. Here's a man who has been studying Jewish law. He knows what the Pentateuch says. He knows what the prophets say. He knows what the fathers have said about what the law says. He is so well versed. I mean, he just graduated from school, if you will. And he knows that some of these people have been trying to test Jesus and entrap him and get him tripped up. And he's been thinking about this for a while, probably. He says, I'm going to do this. And says, I'm going to ask him a question. And I know exactly what I'm going to ask him. And here's probably how he's going to respond. If he doesn't respond this way, he'll respond this way or this way. And here's going to be my rebuttal points. And I'll go, I've got you. Because that's just the type of a guy he was. He was wanting to test Jesus. And so he says, teacher, what must I, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Genuine, sincere question. It could have been. He could have been very concerned about Jesus' thoughts on this instead of trying to trap him. I mean, but think about it. Jesus could have simply said, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. It's, inheritance is something given to you. You can't earn an inheritance. But Jesus didn't say that. He listened to the man's question. And so he just simply says, Okay, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? You tell me. You ask me this question, what shall I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does the law say? How do you read it? What's your take on this law? You wise lawyer. My snide comment, not Jesus. Okay. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I just imagine as he said that, I wonder what Jesus is going to say about this. Because this is a really good answer, I think. How's he going to come back with anything else, it says, that I can trap him in? And Jesus simply said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. He says, son, you got the right answer. Do it and you'll live. Well, now that wasn't satisfying to this lawyer, this teacher of the law in Israel. So what's he going to do about it? How is he going to trap Jesus in this? He says, well, I've got it. Wishing to justify himself, Luke tells us, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, we can answer that question very literally. My neighbor is the people who live across the street, next door on the sides of the houses. They're my neighbor. Well, it's a little bit more than that. We can go out and we can say, well, yes, potentially, I guess everybody in the United States is my neighbor. Or everybody in the world is my neighbor. Because we all have the connection of humanity. But he wanted to justify himself. And Jesus had to give him a good answer. Jesus was going to expose him. And he did so. He tells him a parable. We know this parable is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I want you to think about it as we read through it. And Jesus just tells us this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. 
What do we know? We don't know a whole lot. We know that there was an individual. Jesus doesn't say anything, just says a man. We don't know that he was a Jew. We don't know if he was a Samaritan. We don't know if he was a Roman, a Gentile. We don't know anything about it. It was a man. There was a body here on the side of the road. Been robbed. Left for dead. And so, that's where he was. But it just happened about, by chance... A priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I kind of have a picture in my mind that the, the man was laying here, and the priest was coming right down in the same lane, right with him. And he sees this man up ahead, and he goes, uh-oh. Hmm. He's sizing it up. He sees something laying there. It looks like a man. I don't want to get involved. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and so the priest isn't on his way to worship he's not going up to the temple to offer his service for the people and offer sacrifices he's probably going home I've had a long time up at the temple in Jerusalem and I'm really anxious to get home you know there's a time in our lives when we're busy going someplace and we've been on the journey and we really want to get home home is on your mind and something happens and you just, ah, maybe I should stop, I should do this. That's what that priest was thinking. Now, I don't think he was even thinking, he sees this body and says, I don't want to get involved. And so he passes by on the other side of the road. He saw something. He saw a man, half, you know, stripped down, half dead. Didn't go and check on his condition. But it was a priest. One of the people in Israel who should have known... God's law about mercy and compassion and doing good to the strangers but he didn't well likewise just by chance here comes a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side he's right in that same lane maybe he's even following this priest by a little ways but he's going down to Jericho or some points down that way Because he too is going home. Now, the Levites, well, they've served peripheral roles in the temple worship. They played music, they opened and closed the gates, they stood guard. Uh, They were important people. They were the ones responsible for packing up and transporting and reconstructing the tabernacle whenever the Israelites went to a new camp. So they were pretty much up there, right close to the priest, as they served with them. Close enough that they too should have been very familiar with God's law concerning mercy and compassion. But he just saw a body. Didn't want to get involved. Seen lots of bodies, and I'm tired. It's been a long day. I want to get home. I want to kick my feet up. I want to have a cup of coffee or glass of iced tea. You know, whatever his beverage of the day was. He just wanted to get home and relax. Now Jesus does something else. And he says, But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Now Jesus is very focused on this. He says, But a Samaritan. 
Now, Samaritans, well, they were the, you know, when the northern kingdom was taken off into captivity, and the way they did things when one nation took captives, they would just spread them out into other parts of their kingdom. And so these some people that weren't Jews came into the area that the northern tribes lived in, and then they some of the re, remaining remnants of the northern tribes lived there, and they intermarried, and well... They weren't fully Jew, and so the Jewish people didn't have anything to do with them. Their animosity was there, and it existed for a long time. And to say that a Samaritan was doing something good was probably... This man, this lawyer, probably couldn't handle that. But he says, there was a Samaritan. Now, he was on a journey. What does that mean, to be on a journey? It means that you've got a place to go and a place to be at soon. Because you're on a journey. You know, when we went on vacation, we were going to a campground in Idaho. Now, there were some things along the way that we were gonna, where we were going to stop and rest and then take off the next day and maybe get some extra supplies that we might need. But we were on a journey. We had a destination in mind. This Samaritan had a destination in mind. He was going to go somewhere and do something, whether it was buy and sell and trade and go on vacation. We don't know. He was a Samaritan who was on a journey. He came upon this man. And when he saw him, so he's in that same lane, and he sees him, and he felt compassion. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He could probably perhaps imagine himself being on a journey and coming up on, you know, thieves overpowering him and thinking, Oh, wow, I hate that happened to me. I wonder what's happened to this individual. And so, as he went through that, in his mind, he wanted to show compassion and mercy. He felt compassion. That's feeling that, I've got to do something to alleviate this man's pain. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, Jesus said. When you mourn for someone's pain, you can kind of identify with them just a little bit. When you extend mercies, because you want mercy extended to you as well, He had compassion on him. He came to him. He bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. So he took care of his immediate needs. I've got to get this man fixed up. He was no doctor, but he knew that this man was beaten, was wounded, and so he bandaged him up to stop any bleeding that was there, to keep an infection out. And then he does something different. He says, this man can't walk. He's in no condition. He's not on his beast of burden on his donkey probably that he was riding on he puts him on his own beast he says this man's going to ride because he can't walk and he takes him to an inn and then he takes some time to take care of him how long we don't know but he stayed with him for a little while probably overnight to make certain that he was stable And he was going to be okay. But he had a journey that he was on and he had to get there. And he says, so on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. So here's money out of my pocket. I want you to take care of him. And by the way, if you spend more than this, when I come back, when I return, I'll repay you. 
So what did this Samaritan, this good Samaritan as we call him, what did he do? He took time they didn't have to give because he felt compassion. Because there was someone in need. He gave his own ride to a man who was beaten and left for dead because he wasn't able to go on his own power. And then he gave his time again at the end to take care of him overnight to make sure he was going to be stable. And then he gave money to the innkeeper. He said, here's an advance. If you spend more than this, I'm good for it. And so he gave him that money. He gave him the promise that I'll repay you. So Jesus has pointed all this out. And he just simply says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So he says, young lawyer, which one? And he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You said it yourself. Now I've given you a scenario. Which one of these three men proved to be a neighbor? Now get this about this lawyer and how the hatred of the Jews toward the Samaritans was. And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. Oh, that would have been an indictment, wouldn't it have been? To say this Samaritan showed mercy. This Samaritan proved to be a neighbor. Oh, well, it was the one. I can't say Samaritan because I hate those people. He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. So Jesus simply said, go and do the same. You know, this parable is called the Good Samaritan for a reason because the Samaritan really saw what was going on. He saw somebody in need. He didn't care who he was, what he was. He didn't. There was a high likelihood it could have been a Jew. Jesus doesn't tell us. I think that's intentional. So the attorney wouldn't have, the lawyer wouldn't have any means of getting out of this. It was just a nobody. You know, he's that one that's face is on that card at the restaurant that says 50 cents will feed this man for a day. Jesus said the man was hurt, injured. Two men passed him by, but one, a Samaritan, gave assistance. And this, the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy, Jesus says, go and do the same. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a preacher, pastor in Germany at the time of Hitler. He ended up losing his life after being in prison in a, in a concentration camp. But Bonhoeffer wrote the exclusions of the weak and insignificant, the seemingly useless people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. And the poor brother Christ is knocking at the door. And Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 25, and then this lesson will soon be yours. In Matthew chapter 25... In verse 31 and following. This is a separation of the sheep and the goats. It's judgment scene. And because we know it so well, I'll probably summarize some of it. But we know that he's separating the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Verse 33. And he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. Thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me. And naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you thirsty and give you something to drink? When you were a stranger and invite you in naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And Jesus simply said, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying you you were not indifferent to the needs of those who were hurting. You saw them. And you had compassion upon them. And you did what you could to meet their needs. Now, those that were separated onto the left, the goats, he tells them the same thing. They said, essentially, Lord, when did we see you in these situations? Well, inasmuch as you didn't do it to the least of mine, you didn't do it to me. What's he saying? He says, you were indifferent. You were indifferent to those of mine who were hungry, thirsty, a stranger. You were indifferent to those who were sick and in prison. And since you were indifferent to their needs, you were indifferent to me. And so you're excluded from the kingdom. And he says to them, verse 45, I truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to me, you didn't do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. They will go away into eternal punishment, but to the righteous, eternal life. You know, God has sent us out in the world, called us out of the world so that we'll make a difference. So like the Samaritan in the parable that we will be moved with compassion to a hurting people. And we have to serve because that's what Jesus did. We've been sent out into the world. A preacher in England by the name of G.A. Stoddard Kennedy, he wrote a poem on indifference. He said, when Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through his hands and feet and made a calvary. Red were his wounds and deep, for these were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they simply passed him by. They wouldn't hurt a hair of him, they only let him die. For men had grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They only passed down on the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And it still rained, the winter rain, and soaked, that soaked him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against the wall and cried for Calvary. Indifference. It hurts. I won't take the time to read all of it. But... There's a book, America's Too Young to Die. It was published in 1979. has a section in it called Amos Goes to Washington. It says, Woe to them that are at ease in Washington and trust in bureaucracy and the power of the dollar, chiefs of the most powerful race to whom the people of America look. Pass over to London and see. From there you will see. Go to Moscow, the great. Then go down to Rome with the Italians. Are you really better than these lands as you so often boast? Skipping a little bit, they drink wine and martinis and stingers and grasshoppers and smoke longer and longer cigarettes, although medics warn them they cause lung cancer. And they are not grieved for the affliction of young men in Vietnam or the young youth heading for anarchy in their nations. 
The Lord, verse 8, the Lord has sworn by himself, I abhor the pride of America. Therefore I will deliver up that country with all its senators and congressmen and those who ride on political coattails. Indifference. It strikes every nation and every people, but may it not strike God's people. May we see what the Samaritans saw in the parable. May we see a person, a human, just like us, whose blood is red, less like ours, who breathes the same air that we breathe. When someone is hurting, may we see their pain. May we strive to deal with that pain and help them. The sin of indifference is a terrible sin. We have all a chance to do something. We may be overwhelmed, but sometimes it just takes 50 cents. And 50 cents multiplied by a lot of people is a lot of money that can lift people out of a bad situation and help them. This lesson hasn't been one designed to tell you the fundamentals of becoming a Christian. It's just been one to challenge us to not be indifferent to those who are hurting around us. So that we'll be more fervent in our prayers, more concerned about those around us who are hurting, and strive to be there for them, and to not just ignore them. But if you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, won't you please come to Him while together we stand and while we sing this song.